0: If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to John chapter 8, or if you got a new toy for Christmas, you can turn your Bible on, I guess. I don't know. I kind of have to start saying that now. John chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Probably a familiar passage for, uh, for most of us. Whoops, I'm sorry. Whew, I dodged a bullet. Kids, kindergarten through third grade, you are dismissed to children's church. Kids' pray zone. If you're a visitor here and you have a kindergartner all the way up through a third grader, they can head towards the back. We've got uh, some adults back there who are going to take them down just one floor. To the children's wing, you can pick them up there after the service is over. (laughs) Okay, now, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. You can follow along as I read. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to Him, and He sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to Him, "'Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses...' Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say?' And they were saying this, testing Him in order that they might have grounds for accusing Him. But Jesus stooped down and with His finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking Him, He straightened up and said to them, "'He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her.' And again He stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And He was left alone and the woman where she was in the midst." And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Let's pray. If you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Help us to hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption. He redeems us from all our iniquities. Father, we ask that You would take that truth from Your Word and that You would plant it deep within our hearts, that You would give us not only um, an acute awareness of how far short we fall of the righteousness revealed in Your Word, but that we would marvel at the righteousness that is made and given to us freely so that we can rejoice in doing what is right. Help us to see that Your glory is most clearly displayed in this transaction, in this giving of righteousness to unrighteous people by the gift and the sacrifice of Your Son. We ask, Father, that Your Holy Spirit would open eyes, would uh, give understanding to our minds, and would cause us to love the truth that we see in Your Word. May all that we do and say be pleasing and honoring to You and accurate with Your text. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So John 8, 1 through 11, condemnation and pardon meet. Kind of the thrust of this story that you have here is uh, on this issue of how Jesus is going to deal with or respond to the clear requirements of the law. And why it is or how it is that Jesus can look the law, look the letter of the law, clearly written without any ambiguity and not do what the law requires men to do, which is, in this case, to execute someone who's guilty of a capital crime. Now, this morning is going to be a little bit different because, because before we even get into the passage, I have to give sort of a disclaimer that... Typically, does not run with any other passage that we come across in Scripture. Maybe one other one, but we got enough on our plate without me having to mention that. So, if you look in your in your Bible, depending on what version you're working off of, um, with the exception probably of the King James, you you probably have this passage starting at seven fifty three down through eight eleven. You probably have it marked off in brackets. Or you may have an asterisk or some sort of footnote or something like that. And if you follow that footnote or that marginal reading, you probably have something like this. Uh, the editors of your English version say, John seven fifty three through eight eleven is not found in most of the old manuscripts. Okay? Not found in most of the old manuscripts. What they mean by that is when we go back and when we draw on... These ancient manuscripts, copies, handwritten copies of the New Testament, the vast majority, almost without exception, of the oldest and what are thought to be the best and most authoritative copies, when they come to this spot in John, this passage, this story is not in there. Which has led a lot of people to question, and I think probably rightfully so, whether or not this story was in fact actually part of John's original writing. All right? Just to just to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about here. You can look up on the screen. I didn't make this part of your sermon notes because I want to be able to disavow anything that you try to charge me with when the senior pastor gets back. So I'm going to go through this. I'm going to read it. We're going to wrestle with this apparent dilemma and then we'll get, jump back to the Word and we'll work our way through it, okay? This is taken from a book, uh, uh, an introduction to the New Testament by D.A. Carson, uh, Doug Moo, and Leon Morris, all of whom godly men believing the authority of Scripture. On this particular passage, they write this, Despite the best efforts to prove that the narrative of the woman caught in adultery was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against it. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text as the NIV does, or to relegate it to a footnote, as the RSV does. These verses are absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts that have come down to us, representing great diversity of textual textual traditions. All the early church fathers omit this narrative. In commenting on John, they pass immediately from 752 to 812. No Eastern father cites the passage before the 10th century, Moreover, a number of later manuscripts that include the narrative mark it off with asterisks or oboli indicating hesitation as to its authenticity. Although most of the manuscripts that include the story place it at 753 through 811, some place it instead after Luke 2138, and others variously after John 744, John 736, or John 2125. The diversity of placement confirms though it cannot establish, the inauthenticity of the verses. You catch that? All right, if we were to sum it up, basically what they're saying is, when you look at the manuscript evidence that we have, this story is absent. It doesn't really start to show up until several hundred years later. When you go back and you look at historical records of some of the early church fathers... In the early centuries of the church, when they're writing letters or writing their own commentaries on Scripture, and when they are commenting on the gospel of John, they, they don't mention this story. It's just not there. And the, the implication is that they don't mention this story because in their copy of the New Testament, that story is not in there. And so, when you begin to put all this evidence together, then the conclusion seems to be reasonably well asserted that this passage wasn't original to what John wrote when he put pen to paper. Now, all that being said, that doesn't mean that the story isn't true necessarily. It just means that it appears that John wasn't the one who wrote it. And so, because there's probably some historicity to it it was known by some people somehow or another in the process of passing Scripture down generation to generation. It worked its way into the manuscripts. Editors don't really know what to do with it. They can't prove that John didn't write it. And so since they don't really know, they figure, well, it's at least best to leave it in, make a note about our uncertainty, and sort of let the chips fall where they may, okay? Now, let me touch on this just briefly Once, uh, from two different perspectives. One... From an apologetic perspective, like, well, what does this do to the faith that you're saying this well-known story probably isn't actually something that John wrote? And then let me step over to the other side and address it from more of a pastoral perspective, like, why does this matter, or why should it matter to the church? One, apologetically defending the reliability of Scripture and its and its authority and authenticity. Typically what will happen when something like this is raised, doubt is cast on the entire New Testament or Scripture as a whole, right? Well, there it is, evidence of the fact that you can't really trust anything that you read in the Bible because how do you know that the copy that you have now some 2,000 years later is anything like the copy that the early church had? How do you know that your letters from Paul or that your gospels from Matthew and Luke and John, how do you know that they're anything like what they actually wrote. Just to to compare the accuracy and uh, the certainty that we have about the content and the text of the New Testament, let me me just draw a quick comparison. This will be up on the screen. If you take uh, the Gallic Wars written by Caesar, we have approximately ten manuscripts of the Gallic Wars. And of these ten manuscripts that we have of the Gallic Wars, the earliest we can date them to is some 900 years after when Caesar would have actually written the Gallic Wars. Does that make sense? In other words, the copies are 900 years old. There's a 900-year gap between when Caesar wrote and the first copies that we were able to find, yet no one calls into question the reliability of the Gallic Wars being a historical document. Contrast that then to what we have in the New Testament. With the New Testament, we have over 5,000 manuscripts. The earliest complete copies of the New Testament we have coming just some 300 years after the time when they would have originally been written. Do you see the difference? In other words, if we can't place great confidence in the reliability of Scripture as we have it in light of all the manuscript evidence that bears witness to what it is that you have in your Bible this morning We you can't be certain about any ancient document. The magnitude of the number of manuscripts actually gives us greater confidence in the reliability of Scripture because we have so much evidence to pull into the discussion to say... Well, when we look at copies from this region and that region and this date and that date, look at how well they agree or look at how they correct each other, which then gives us great reliability and certainty when we come to the text. Now, having said all that, most of you are probably not, maybe some of you are, concerned so much with the apologetic side as you are with the pastoral side, which is, okay, if this passage is doubtful, why read it at all, much less why why actually preach from it. Let me give you three reasons. One, the the story is just too well-known for us to ignore. I mean, it's in Scripture precisely because we're not 100% confident as to whether or not it should be there or not. Therefore, we have to do something with it. And it's well-known not just simply from a Christian perspective… But this starts to seep through even into the non-Christian conversation as well, right? So, you have uh, unbelievers or non-Christians, people who aren't really connected with the church, and even they can throw out, most of them, it's increasingly less, but many of them can still throw out verses like, judge not lest you be judged, right? Or John 3.16, or, you know, taken from Jesus' statement here, you know, hey, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. People in glass houses shouldn't throw rocks. That, that kind of a thing, right? So there needs to be some way, it seems, in which the church can wrestle with this passage, even though there's questions as to where it originated from, and wrestle with it in a way that's beneficial for us as a Christian community and can be beneficial in our interaction with those outside of the church who perhaps knows something of this story without knowing much of anything else about the Bible, right? Because if they throw this in your face, when you're presenting the gospel to them, it probably doesn't help to say, well, Codex Sinaiticus doesn't really have this in here, therefore that's a moot point, right? They just kind of look at you like you're a nut and ignore you. Two even though we can't be 100% confident as to where this story originated from, the fact of the matter is is it doesn't contradict what we have in the gospel accounts. In other words, the story as it plays out holds true to the character of Christ. It holds true to the sayings and the teaching of Christ. So we don't have to worry about pitting this story or this episode against what's said in other passages of the gospel. Third... And this, I think, at least for me, is one of, the more, one of the more beneficial or profitable reasons. Third, the reason that it's good to look at a passage like this is because when you take this storyline and when you tie it in with surrounding Scripture, I think it does become very edifying because it has a way, when read well and read in the light of broader Scripture, it has a way of magnifying the person and the work of Jesus Christ in a way that should cause us to rejoice and to celebrate. So, having said all that, you can now tune back in, all right? Let's walk through a brief outline and then we'll take it point by point. Three main points that I'm going to try to tackle here for this passage. Number one, as you read through this story, this encounter with the adulterous woman, the first point is that the leaders are right on their reading of the law. The leaders are right on their reading of the law. Point number two, Jesus has the right to pronounce a ruling on the law. Reading the law and ruling on the merits of a case or ruling on the law are two totally different things, right? You can read federal law and federal statutes all day long, you and I have absolutely no authority to render a judgment according to that law in a courtroom. So, the leaders are right in their reading of the law. Jesus has the right, owns the right, claims the right to pronounce a ruling on the law. And then third, Jesus makes us right according to the righteousness of that same law. So, let's start with the first point, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees being right on their reading of the law. We don't really need to belabor this too much. We can go to uh, this passage that you see up on the screen, Leviticus 20.10, and read very plainly what Scripture says, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And then, as you go through Leviticus and, in fact, when you tie it in with other passages in Deuteronomy, you find that there are more statements about adultery and how it's to be treated and the punishment to be meted out. But consistent with all of this, regardless of what the nature of the relationship of the man is to the woman or the woman to the man, what's consistent in all of this is that adultery under the Mosaic Law was a capital offense. If you were guilty of adultery, the law said you were to be executed. So... When the scribes and the Pharisees come and they say to Jesus, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery, Jesus can't dodge the issue by saying, well, that's hearsay because she was caught in the act. There's not an obscure clause in the Mosaic Law that Jesus can refer back to and say, yes, it says this, but on subsection A, paragraph 2, it says this, and then let the woman go. It's a pretty open and shut case. Now, before we go to how Jesus handles this and how we're to think about how Jesus handles this, let's at least acknowledge up front that even though the scribes and the Pharisees are right on their reading of the law, adultery under the law deserves death, Even though their reading is right, their spirit clearly is not right, right? The first indication of this is clearly spelled out in the story because the narrator tells us in verse 6 that they bring this woman and this dilemma, dilemma, this situation, this case to Jesus not because they have a burning desire to see the righteousness of God demonstrated in their midst, but because what they want first and foremost is an opportunity to trip Jesus up. They're bringing this woman under the law to Jesus so that in confronting Jesus with the law, the law can be used as a club, not merely on this woman, but on Jesus himself. So we know that there's no real heartfelt desire to see the law in all its righteousness carried out and executed faithfully. There's another part of this also. The narrator doesn't necessarily draw attention to this, but it should kind of stick out like a sore thumb. When you read from Leviticus 20.10 and you compare what the law says about those guilty of adultery and the situation that you have here in John 8, do you notice anything that's missing? Yeah. The law calls for both guilty parties to be executed where's the man? You see? We caught this woman in the very act of adultery. She needs to be executed. What do you say? it takes two to tango, right? Where, where's the other person? Again, no real desire to see the law carried out or to see the law faithfully represented. Let's not pass too quickly over this because the embarrassing reality is oftentimes the same mindset or spirit that's demonstrated by the scribes and Pharisees can begin to seep into our own hearts and minds as well, right? So that it's possible for God's own people to abuse the law even as they appear to abide by it right it is possible for us to abuse the righteousness of god's law even as we appear to abide by it all you have to do is look at this example and it should be fairly easy to pull out ways in which that's done first and foremost a selective reading or selective application of the law right in the midst of the culture wars of America right now. One of the things that's raging at the forefront of the battle line is this argument and debate and fighting over the definition of marriage. Homosexual rights, all this. Kind of... And if you're not careful, the church can put itself in a position in which even as they shout out and proclaim The righteousness of God as revealed in Scripture concerning homosexuality, they can do that in such a way that it becomes so selective and so narrow in its focus that we turn a blind eye to what the rest of Scripture says about the righteous living that God's people are called to in all other walks of life, right? Very easy for me to level charges and accusations and to condemn people who would be violating God's revealed will, say, on homosexuality, while I ignore my own violations of God's revealed will when it comes to heterosexuality. Right? Or, I look around at pop culture and I see how all these... Stars, athletes, musicians, media people, right? They, they more or less are self-created idols in society, right? They have these people who flock after them, follow them, hang on their every words as if they have something valuable to say. And we look at that and we just ridicule popular culture, yet we have our own forms of idolatry that we kind of nestle safely within the four walls of the church as well, Right? Parents can make idols out of children. Grandparents can make idols out of grandchildren. A spouse can make an idol out of their partner. We can look around and we can see the clear signs of sensuality pervading through our culture, but we don't consider that things like gluttony is also a form of sensuality, right? When your senses, taste, become so dominant that you just give over your actions, your schedule, right? You live to eat. Sensuality. and Idolatry too. You begin to worship food. Second, the other way that it's possible for us to abuse the law, even as we appear to abide by it, is when we use it in the wrong way. Part of that we've already touched on, but by that I mean this. When the the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus, they come to Jesus with the law. They're not coming to Him, they're coming at Him. Right? Big difference. If in your use or in your reading of the law as you see the holy and righteous requirements that God has spelled out in His law, if, at the end of the day, your handling of the law is not used as a guide rail or as a path that leads to the feet of Christ, you're not using the law properly. Paul says, the law was given so that all men would be shut up under sin. They would have nothing to say, no defense to offer for themselves. They could not point to their own works of righteousness and claim right standing before God. But he also says the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The best way that Christians use the righteousness of God as it's revealed in the law, as it's revealed in the Old Testament, is to say all that God reveals here about what He wants and what He desires, He's already provided in the person of His Son. Parents, when you're raising your children, you have to do more than just tell, teach them right from wrong. You have to. Because if all you do is teach them right from wrong, you're just creating a next gener- another generation of Pharisees. You have to teach them right from wrong and then show them how their inability to consistently do what is right should make them hungry for the perfect righteousness of Christ. You should use lessons about right and wrong as a springboard, as a platform to make Jesus look big, not to teach morality. Co-workers, you've got to do the same thing as you witness to those people that labor beside you in the workplace. It's not enough for you to throw out a scripture or a verse every now and then and say, see, here's why it is that you're falling short. But in showing how we fall short, you need to show what, what makes up the gap. How Christ comes in and reconciles us to the standard that we could never meet. And one of the best ways that you can do this, which is obviously not what is done here in this story, is not merely using the law to point out the sins and the offenses of others, but using the law to point out your own sin and offense, right? You notice when Jesus says, let the one who's without sin throw the first stone, the minute that the focus is turned not just from the selective application of righteousness to this woman, but to how God's righteousness applies to all of them… Everyone just kind of falls away. Be careful how you use God's Word. It's possible for you, it's possible for me, it's possible for us to use, to read, to even quote it accurately and yet to abuse it at the same time. That being said, point number two... Jesus has the right to pronounce a ruling on the law. If the scribes and the Pharisees read this portion of Scripture right, then you still have to come back and say, well, the dilemma still remains. Even though their motivation may not be right, the fact of the matter is, is that whether they have both guilty parties or not, this woman is still guilty of adultery, and under the requirement of the law, she must be put to death. How then can Jesus knowing full well what the law says and what the law requires, not do what the law says. Hold your place here. Hold your place here and go back to Matthew 5. Just to kind of ratchet up the tension a little bit, Matthew 5 17. Listen to what Jesus Himself says. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Okay, Jesus, you came to fulfill the law. Law says this woman has to be executed. Fulfill the law. Sign off on the execution. if Jesus came to fulfill the law and the law says death is required, can Jesus rightfully not carry this through? There are two passages that help us out in the Gospels think through what appears to be a discrepancy in Jesus' ministry. The one happens in Mark chapter 2, and the other is in this gospel in John chapter 5. In Mark chapter 2, you don't need to turn there right now, but that's the story where the paralytic is brought to Jesus. And Jesus sees his faith and says, your your faith is made well, your sins are forgiven. And the, the religious leaders who are standing around said, who can say such a thing? This man blasphemes. Only God can forgive sin. In other words, only God can pardon. Jesus then says, knowing what they're reasoning, Jesus says, which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say to this paralytic, take up your pallet and walk? And then Jesus says, in order to show you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your pallet and walk. Couple that with the passage in John. Do turn to this one. John chapter 5, verse 22. It's just a couple pages over. Jesus says this in John 5, 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as... They honor the Father. So you take Mark chapter 2, in order to show you that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin, and you take John chapter 5, the authority to judge, the right to judge has been given to the Son, and you say Jesus has an authority that the scribes and Pharisees do not have. See, when the scribes and the Pharisees, and for any other person for that matter, when they come to the law... They must do what the law speaks, what the law says. The scribes and Pharisees do not have the authority to suspend the sentence of a guilty person. They're not the judge. Law clerks, maybe, at best, poor ones, But if Jesus really has the authority to forgive sins, and if the right to judge that belongs only to God the Father, the Father Himself has given to His Son, then now Jesus has an authority that no other human being can ever claim. And that is, He has the authority and He has the right to not only read the law and interpret it, but to apply it as He sees fit. Right? Right? So that whereas the scribes and Pharisees can read the law and can only pronounce guilt and judgment, Jesus and Jesus alone says, for anyone who comes to me with the burden of the law on their shoulders, for anyone who comes to me looking for relief and looking for help from their crimes, from their offenses and their trespasses, which the law speaks to, if you come to me... I and I alone can give you what no other person can give you. I can absolve you of all guilt. Sexual immorality, greed, angry outbursts, covetousness, lust, whatever it is. This goes to the authority that Jesus has to do something that the scribes and Pharisees could not do. They could not pardon. Jesus can. Still, however, we have to go one level deeper and say, okay, but if Jesus has the authority to pardon, if He has the right to say, even though you're guilty, I forgive you and I don't punish you, don't you still have this uneasy unsettled feeling that somehow along the way, even though it's nice that Jesus does that, that somehow or another He's playing fast and loose with the law, right? In other words, if someone is brought into a courtroom under, name your offense, right, traffic violation, and under the law they're supposed to pay a fine, and the judge says, don't worry about it, go on home, even though you could say, gosh, that judge sure was nice, or gosh, he sure was lenient, can you rightfully say that he executed justice? No, because the law says this crime is met with this punishment. So just because you may find a lenient judge doesn't, mi- doesn't mean that you find a just judge. Judge. So, Jesus can have the authority to render all the decisions that He wants, but if there's not a way for justice to be carried out, He turns into a violator of the law in the same way that the scribes and Pharisees are, just from a different angle. And here's where a couple passages in Romans become extremely helpful in sorting through all of this. Turn to Romans chapter 3. We'll start at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or as an appeasement of His wrath in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Take note of that statement that in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. See, here's the way that all of this comes together and and fits beautifully with the person and work of Christ. It's not enough for Jesus to have the authority to pronounce pardon. Jesus also has to have the ability to provide atonement that's still lacking. So in light of what Paul says, that all through human history up to the time of Christ's crucifixion, All the sins that have been committed by the human race, all of those sins were deserving of death, and yet God passed over them. Did He ignore them? No. Did He say it wasn't a big deal? No. He passed over them knowing that even though He did not judge the sin at that very moment, there was coming a time in which that sin would be judged. Fast forward to the time of Jesus and in this story with the adulterous woman. If we're to factor this story in with the broader message of the gospel, it would work something like this. Jesus comes to this woman who by all rights is condemned to die under the clearly written law, the revealed will of God, and He has the authority to say, your sins are forgiven. You're pardoned. But He says that not setting aside the justice of God, he says that knowing full well that her sin will still be condemned. The difference is it will be condemned on him. Right? I don't condemn you. Rather, I will condemn or allow the Father to condemn me. Turn a few pages over and wrote to Romans chapter eight. Romans eight verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God said, "Ah, don't worry about it. We'll just wipe the slate clean." No for, here's why there's no condemnation, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? By sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Do you see that? that transaction, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for anything. Why? Because forgiveness has been declared, not because God just said, well, don't worry about it, but because the condemnation that should have fallen on the adulterous woman, on greedy Christians, on selfish Christians, on adulterous Christians even, whatever the person you're talking about, that condemnation has been taken and placed on Christ. So that even the physical execution of God's judgment is fully satisfied at the cross. So when we wrestle with how to come to grips with the commands of Scripture the righteous requirement of a holy God. And when we attempt to bear witness to the truth of God to those who are still blind or still hardened by sin, it's not enough just to simply say, come to Jesus because He makes all of that better. They have to know why they need to come to Jesus. Not simply because Jesus says, I'll forgive you like He's a nice guy or a lenient judge, but because that judge has placed Himself In the seat of execution to take on their punishment and their penalty. But then there's one final piece that we still have to get to if we're to understand and appreciate this story within the broader framework of Scripture. That's point number three. Point number three is Jesus makes us right according to the righteousness of the law. If you're still in Romans 8, pick back up at Romans 8, 3, and let's read verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Turn back to John chapter 8. Notice at the very end of this story what Jesus says. He asked, woman, in verse 10, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? She says, no one. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on sin no more. The wonder of the gospel, the good news about what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ and through His work is not merely, great is what this is, is not merely that God has granted us forgiveness by punishing His Son instead of us. But, that the message of salvation, the good news is such that not only are we pardoned and forgiven, but for everyone who receives that pardon, they also receive freely a transformation that comes with that forgiveness. Which is why Jesus says to the woman, I don't condemn you. Go your way. Go and sin no more. And why Paul says... All that was done through Christ in order that the condemnation that should have been on us was placed on Him, that was done in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, in us, in your heart, in your mind. If you have been pardoned, if you have been forgiven by Christ, if He has taken on your judgment, Jesus Paul, all the writers of the New Testament declare the same thing. For everyone who has experienced that pardon, they also receive a purification that causes them to walk righteously. Paul phrases it by saying, this was done in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, the way we used to live, but who walk now, who live now by the power of the Spirit. The very best way that we can take this narrative and can think and reflect on it is to think about what this story has to say or reveals about the person and work of Jesus Christ. All these things that are written bear witness and testify to Him. And we have to see and understand that when we celebrate the coming of a Savior at Christmas, when we look forward with anticipation or even optimism to the start of a new year, any hope or any good thing that comes, comes freely as a gift from the Lord because of the work of Christ. And that work is so full and complete that if all we do is lay claim to His pardon and His forgiveness without also laying claim to a newness of life, we're diluting the power of the gospel. We're diluting salvation. And if, in our witness to those outside of the church, if all that we can present them with is a list of do's and don'ts, or all we can present them with is holy commands without showing them that because they will inevitably fall short of these commands, they have to find someone who can do it for them, and that person is Jesus. Even if we stop there and say, He does what you can't do and therefore forgives and pardons you, even if we stop there, we give them a watered-down gospel because the gospel not only pardons according to the power and the work of Jesus Christ, it also transforms. Christians of all people should be the most gracious, humble people on the planet. Because while they recognize the difference between sin and righteousness, they also know the source of righteousness, how it's to be found, and how it's to be applied. And I just want to encourage you this morning, as you go out from here, as you go into the new year, as you interact with family members, some of whom may not be Christians themselves or coworkers, think along these lines. Think of, the, of a full, bold gospel that not only calls people to repentance from their sin, that not only offers pardon from their sin, but offers them the power to break free from that sin that for so long has held them down as slaves. Because it's when you find that pardon and the power that comes with Jesus Christ that you really, truly become most grateful and most thankful. And that's when the church's witness is at its best and when our worship is at its best. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that clearly reveals Your righteousness and Your holiness, and that in Your grace and mercy, even though those things cut us to the quick and it brings us to conviction and confronts us with our rebellion and our sin, that in Your grace and mercy, You have provided a means of escape. You have provided Your Son as the way, the truth, and the life, the only way by which we can come and be reconciled to You. And instead of finding judgment, find pardon. And instead of living as rebels, live as reconciled sons. Father, we praise You that even further, as great as what that pardon is, that with that reconciliation also comes the power to live as children of God. Help us, Father, as we go forward to be able to call people not just to repentance, but to the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ us to be bold in our witness, to think clearly through Scripture, to be able to give timely words to the right person at the right moment, and let it be done in such a way that we make much of Jesus and make very little of ourselves by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.